when you get challenged by someone who's a, a guy like a Jake Paul, does that piss you off? Is right, it part, uh, part of it that's just like... My, um... No, it doesn't. I don't no? think, I think it's awesome. You think it's awesome? <laughs> yeah, I think it puts me off. I think it's cool. <laughs> you think it's cool? That's awesome. That's awesome that you, you handle it that way. Because, like, in a way, I mean, it's it's kind of insulting. It's brave, it's bold of him, but it's also, it's like, Jesus Christ, there's levels to this world. And welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where we're about to have about as much money to spend as Chelsea in light of what's going on in the world right now. Um, I should probably start the episode by just warning people, I'm probably not going to touch on the MTK stuff again because... To go further than what I'd said in the previous two episodes that you guys had heard is going to put myself and a lot of people in uncomfortable positions. And I don't want to be the person to do the job of the law enforcement agents for them. What I can say is this. From the pieces I've been able to put together by my own deduction and what people have told me, it's going to be very hard to find people not implicated in this. If they wanted to go all the way down to level zero, on all of this, I don't think anyone gets away scot-free. It will get to the point where you'd have to rip Boxy up and start again. Like, I think I think that MTK money affected more of its population than COVID did, full stop. And it's probably even more infectious. So I probably won't say too much. And I'll be guided by the authorities' sake, so I think that's the right thing. However, were you to catch me out and about having a drink or two, and you were to ask me the question, I might answer it, and I might even draw out a diagram that shows exactly how all of this fits together. And it is insane. And it would explain why the authorities have decided to act now, because I think the next wave they were going for would have left them pretty much untouchable. So... I'm going to park it for there. And I think there are there are numerous outlets right now who are willing to take that risk and talk. And I say kudos to them. I hope the guys at Enswell keep pushing this forward. I'd like that. I think being Irish, those guys are closer to the ground than I am. I'm, I'm just going to sit here. And the only thing I will say is these broadcasters have to do their due diligence because a lot of statements are being issued now. And this is without knowing the full facts. And I think once the full facts are known, they'll all have to issue an apology and there'll be a retraction and they'll have to act accordingly. It is an absolute mess. An absolute mess. And it's down to two things. I think the creativity, the innovation and the ingenuity of our Irish friends deserves a pat on the back. I will always applaud people who figure out how to play the system. But the people who deserve a sidekick to the jaw are the people who control our sport. Our governors, our regulators, our gatekeepers need a kick to the jaw individually and collectively for being so desperate for cash, they allowed anything to go. So just to summarize, I won't answer any further questions on any of this. Um, I probably won't engage in it anymore. All I will say, and I'll say this with absolute certainty, is there are no exceptions. Like, I'm keeping my lips zipped on this just for the just for the greater good and to, to allow the thing to run its course because I, I'm not a journalist. I'm not paid to do all of this stuff and I don't have the associated 
protections and so on and so forth. And the last thing I need is people trying to dig up where I live, where I work. And, you know, like they did before, messaging the board of control, complaining about me, then realizing I don't have a board license. So the board can do absolutely nothing. All of these things that happen that just, they make your life difficult needlessly. So my attitude has been, you know, sometimes let others carry the load and then, you know, I can come back in as and when expert insight is required. And I don't think that's the, that's the moment right now. I think right now we just need people to start asking tougher questions of our people and our gatekeepers, I guess. What I did want to talk about was the Tyson Fury fight and the immediate aftermath of all of that. So I think we're into fallout season at the moment, which is good. Um, I I went back and I watched it. Now you know it's hard to find a pirated stream of this thing. So naturally, I didn't find a pirated stream. In fact, I I found somebody who had recorded it, and so I chose to watch it. You know that's the official line, and I'm sticking to it. But we all need to walk back from calling Tyson Fury the greatest heavyweight of all time. By the way, I think I think we yeah we we went too far on that one. I think. He stands head and shoulders above this era. I think he stands head and shoulders above the previous era. And I think he stands head and shoulders above the subsequent era. But that's as far as I can go in praising Tyson Fury. Not because he's not great, but it's because no one can cause him the kind of problems that are going to force him to dig inside his skill set and his toolbox right now. No one has those capabilities. No one has that nous and that experience. And Dillian wasn't going to be that guy. And what I want to say up front is this. Dillian wasn't as bad as people are making out. I genuinely think that version of Dillian White would give a lot of other people trouble. That version of Dillian White would have landed at least one of those big bowling right hands on Joshua. He would have landed one of those on Joe Joyce. He would have landed one of those on Joseph Parker. Now, whether those three could have taken it, no idea. But he would have landed those. They wouldn't, he wouldn't have been swinging at the rope and all of that sort of stuff. They would have landed. So it's not like Dillian's gone from you know, top five heavyweight in the world to maybe 45th out of 100. No. It's just that he came up against, against the guy whose light is ahead of him. And so I went back with the question of what made Fury unique that night? And he did what I call rules-based boxing. And I wish more people did this because it makes a trainer's life easier. So let me just break down the fight in very simple terms, right? In attack, if Fury found himself on Dillian's right-hand side, he could come with the counter left hook and the check hook and throw a straight right if he wanted to, right? He did that a lot. If Fury found himself bang in the middle, so between Dillian White's shoulders, he powered through with the jab, shot one to the body, threw a one, two, or threw a jab and a right hook to the body, right? And if he found himself to Dillian's left, and I mean, he could then do the one, two, but come at it from an angle, he could throw a right hand over the top. It gave him options. But he went back to the same options every time he was in those situations. In defense, it was simple. If he found himself on Dillian's right-hand side, that was his A1 position. That's where he wanted to be. So he was always trying to get in that position. If he couldn't be in that position, he wanted to be on Dillian's left-hand side so he could escape out to his right that way. And if he found himself in the middle, he went, ah, oh, bollocks to this, and he just held. 
He did that all through the fight. Imagine, I've just given you, what, six options? And he just worked those six options any way that he could. That's all. Think of the simplicity of that. You just write that up on a whiteboard in the gym and you say, this is all we're going to do for camp. And you apply that against different stars. You apply that against Parker. You apply that against Adler. You apply that against Martin Bacoli. You do it repeatedly. But when, he, when he's in the ring, it looks like he's just thinking on his feet, but he's not. He's just dipping in and out of that rule book and he works to that rule book and those principles. That's all he had to do. And so what you saw with Tyson Fury was consistency. You saw accuracy. And through all of that, you were able to see him maintain a pace because it was the same things every time. He almost didn't have to think in that ring. He just had to make sure he was in the right places at the right times and made the right decisions. Rules-based boxing is so much easier, but so few people train it because the coach likes to think he's the cleverest man in the room, so he wants to keep all the knowledge to himself. If fighters understood that, they'd never stress out. And so... When you look at it that like that from very simple terms, it's like, well, Fury did what he was capable of doing, but Dillian wasn't able to read that. So if you look at how the fight ended, all Fury had done throughout that fight was throw that left hand out, but always try and throw some kind of hook. He didn't care if he hit Dillian or if he hit Dillian's glove. Because what that did is it stopped Dillian moving to his own right. And once Dillian wasn't moving to his own right, he was always a target for Fury's right hand or right uppercut. So progressively, Fury kept testing and he kept doing different things. You know, when he'd go to Dillian's head, Dillian would block with his arms so high that his elbows were at chin level. And that was a problem for Fury because then Fury's like, I can't get to him. So what did Fury do? Quick adaptation, went down through that right hook to the body. That meant Dillian had to keep his hands a bit more honest. And being as wide as Dillian was, it's very hard to keep your elbows in and, and your hands up. And so what you saw with Dillian was he had four or five different ways of dealing with Fury's attacks, but they weren't consistent. It was just wherever his hands were at the time, he tried to defend. There was no consistency. And the whole point about being in a training camp for 10, 12 weeks is you're meant to come out consistent and accurate. That's the least you can do. And it wasn't. And I think that confused Fury for a while until he started to do the work to the body. And then he realized that there were gaps. And if you remember in the fifth round, he, he tried the uppercut. He was in the corner and he threw the jab right uppercut, but he didn't throw it with full intent. He just tested to see what would happen if it was there. And that position, if I knew my fighter was vulnerable to uppercuts, I would have brought in the cross-handed block. If I'd done nothing else in this camp, I'd have said Dillian's going to come in with a cross-handed block, which would give him an opportunity to get close to Fury without sustaining heavy damage. You might catch a body shot, fine. We'll take that to come over the top. Why that wasn't there, I don't know. I wasn't in camp. It's not my place to, to offer judgment. But once you didn't have that cross-handed block and Fury realized that the, hook, the uppercut was on in that fifth round, and then in the sixth round, he uncorked it absolutely uncorked it he had done all the hard work of keeping Dillian bang in the middle which is all he needed to do to keep Dillian bang in the middle and then whack and as as I said in the previous episode the you know the the short-lived one 
he couldn't he couldn't even land that properly. He landed with the two outer knuckles and still did that damage. And it, it looked, the, the, the impact looked violent. It looked, it looked savage. It looked, you know, sometimes you look away from certain knockouts, you're like, oh God, that's bad. And I've, I've seen the discussion online that says the push was illegal. It was this, it was that. I understand where the push came from. Dylan was going to do one of two things. His legs were going to stiffen up and he's going to stay bolt upright like David Price did and catch another shot, which might have put him in hospital. Or he was going to fall forward onto Fury and try and hang on. None of those scenarios would have worked for him. And I think the right thing to happen was that Fury said, no, 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 I don't want you falling on me. You get back over there. And his legs couldn't cope with the, with the push. In any other scenario, Dillian doesn't fall over. If Fury pushed him like that at the weigh-in, Dillian doesn't fall over. He falls over because that punch had him out on his feet. Sad reality, but that punch had him out on his feet. Now, that begs the question, you know, is there an injustice here and do we need a rematch? We, we really don't need the rematch and I'll tell you why. That was a routine defense for Fury. That fight wasn't harder for him than a Tom Schwartz fight. It wasn't. Also, Wyland made it, made it rough in there for him in a way that Didion wasn't able to. And so now we go back and we go, Otto Wilden wasn't crazy when he said him versus Dillian might be an interesting fight. We might need to go back and revisit that fight in light of what's happened subsequently. But it was a routine defense and it reminded me in some ways, just very high level of like a Klitschko versus Leopold type fight. You know where Vlad would do similar things to Fury where he'd, he'd position you where he wanted you and you'd almost not see it coming. Because Vlad would step in with like this really long left hook. That was hard enough for you to go, I'm not going to try and catch one of those again. But it wasn't fully committed. It was just enough to say, you might not want to go that way. And once he stopped you going that way, he could then just pick you off at will. And Vlad mastered that, that ability to just go from defense to defense with as economical a style as possible. And he's also a subscriber to this whole rules-based boxing and I'm not sure if Emmanuel Stewart is. I'll be interested to find out. But Vlad was definitely about compartmentalizing. And in every, you know I mean, he knew what to do in every situation. And that kind of precision, that, that, that accuracy and that consistency is what sets the guys at the top apart from everybody else as far as I'm concerned. So no, I, I, I don't see there being the case for a rematch. I don't think the fans are calling for it in any great number. And I also don't think it would be good for the sport. I think now is going to move on. If Fury is going to retire, fantastic. Scatter the belt. You know, let the Ring Magazine belt go somewhere. Let this belt go somewhere. But then who becomes a lineal champ? Ah, no idea. I really have no idea now. But let's just give up on the notion that we're ever going to see an undisputed heavyweight. We're just not. There isn't the appetite. It should have happened a long time ago. The fact that it hasn't happened tells you money trumps everything else right now. But back to the subject of Vlad, it's, he's, he's releasing videos now of him training. Now I'm confused because I thought he was on the front line protecting his country. Clearly not. But if Vladimir is training and at, what's he now, 45, 46, he thinks he can make a go of it again? I'm intrigued. I'm, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. I'm quite intrigued as to what he could do. Now, 
Would I want to see Vlad versus Derek Chisora? Yeah, why not? I think that would be a fun fight. If As long as Vlad's got some mobility and some skill left, why not? Ideally, I'd love to see him against Shannon Briggs. That's still a fight that would do numbers. That's the sort of thing Triller should have done. Instead of guys like, I don't even know, who do they have? Um, Evander Holyfield against the, I can't even remember who the guy was. It wasn't Shogun, whoever the MMA guy was. Uh, Vito Belfort, was it? TRT Vito, yeah. Instead of those sorts of fights, let's get Shannon Briggs versus Vlad. I'd quite like to see that because having seen the recent heavyweights and how they get on, I don't think Shannon Briggs was wrong when he said back in the day he could give people trouble. We laughed at him because his beard was grey, but Shannon's old school and he's got those old man tricks and he'll know how to survive and his chin is solid. He'll know how to survive in there and he just has to land a couple of times to change the fight. It's the same with Vlad, except Vlad doesn't have the same chin that Shannon Briggs does. So it brings that whole element of, of jeopardy. And I'd quite like to see that. I don't know what format you'd have it in, but that would be a good fight to watch. In terms of Vlad coming back and competing at the top, top level, he's been there and done that. What would you want to be doing that for? He's definitely not going to be troubling guys like Joe Joyce and Tony Yoka. But he could definitely give some of these other guys who are, who are nicking a living in the sport a bit of a spanking. I wouldn't mind seeing that. And as fans, should we be calling for that? Probably not, but every so often I slip in my morals. You know me. But that's not the big news of today. So the big news for me was the news that Lauren Price and Karis Artingstall are going to stay with GB. And that's they're going to run their, their pro career from GB. Now, that was enough of a shock. That was sort of the headline I took from it. Now, I hadn't even read that deep. And then someone told me they're going to do the Olympics in 2024. Now, there are all sorts of problems with this, all sorts of problems, whether you love amateur boxing or not, it is, this applies and this affects everyone. And, and the first thing and the biggest thing we need to say is this. Team GB have now admitted the well is dry. Now, I'm not necessarily close to all of the details, but I can tell you that between Lauren Price and Karis Artingstall, they'll pull in about 300 grand a year from boxing, just from fighting. That's not all the endorsements. That's not all the side deals they'll do. They'll Collectively, they'll pull in more than 300 grand a year. That's a hell of a power couple, by the way. Um, especially living up north. I mean, they can buy half of Sheffield every year if they wanted to. So kudos to them for doing that deal. But we now realize that the cupboard is bare because if you remember when they first announced this before 2016 that professionals could enter GB said it would never happen team GB said they would never allow professionals to fight for team GB because they took the amateur code that seriously and that was the time when Chris Eubank Jr. said why can't I enter for team GB and they said nope the doors closed this is the squad we're taking to the Olympics so fast forward to 2020 in the aftermath, and you've got Lauren Price, gold medalist, Karis Artingstall, bronze medalist, both young enough to go again in 2024. And what GB are basically telling the world is this. We do not have a better replacement for Lauren Price. We do not have a better replacement at 87, um, 57 kilos for Karis Artingstall. And that's testament to how good they are individually, right? 
give them their due. They're, they're class and they're talented. But we're supposed to have this conveyor belt of talent. This is exactly what the money was for. But I've been saying this progressively. The standard of GB has been declining with every Olympics since 2012. Because we got lucky in 2012. There were a lot of hometown decisions in 2012. And we understand this Aiba thing that money was exchanging hands. Now, whether it did for Team GB, no one's telling us. But you suspect that we were looked after. Considering the show we put on, we were looked after. So now we accept the cupboard is bare. But the other problem we now have is, if professionals are allowed to box in the Olympics, will Lauren Price have to justify her place against someone like Savannah Marshall? Because if Savannah Marshall says, I'd quite like to box at 75 in the Olympics, why shouldn't she? You know, let's find out who the best 75 candidate would be for us and let's go. If we're talking about 57, would Ellie Scottney want to do the Olympics? Don't know. So what GB are basically saying is, to all these guys, and I know, you know, you've got trainers like Sam Mullins, who's got a stable of young, solid, good w women fighters. Um, who else is producing them in large numbers? You know, I mean, there, there are a few down sort of Essex way, Chadwell St. Mary, I'm sure. Um, you know, you've got young Amara Taylor, who's, she's boxing out the Midlands. There are loads of these boxers who are coming out now. And the door's being closed to them. Um, Jodie Wilkinson, who's been trying her heart out to qualify for Team GB. All of them are like, well, now the door's being closed to us because the pros might come back. Sandy Ryan might say, actually, I fancy a go at this. Chantal Cameron might say, I fancy a go at this. And they'd be well within their rights to. Natasha Jonas may say, I've got unfinished business. And all of them will be well within their rights to do so. So how does GB manage that? Because it can't be discriminatory like this. This seems to be the worst of all possible messes. And it takes me back to the lockdown. So when they were looking for a new GB CEO, I threw my hat in the ring. Like, to be honest, I did it because I thought it'd be really funny content for, for the podcast, right? So I'd literally be going through the application process and then just kind of talking through what's going on. But it was, it was haphazard, it was garbage, and it was a waste of time. So I got two interviews in, and then I think they found out who I was. And then I just wasn't the right cultural fit. But in the second of those interviews, I gave the presentation I gave to Australia Boxing about how you can take boxing to the next level and what I thought the challenges were in British boxing. And they, they fundamentally disagreed, you know, which is fine because I'm closer to the day-to-day -day goings on in gyms than there. But it's, in essence, it was because GB had tried to manufacture its own pipeline of talent, they basically sacked the clubs off and the clubs had gone off and done their own thing. And all these kids realized that they'd never get to box with their country, so they just turned pro. And so you had this massive talent drain from about 2016 to 2020, just before the pandemic. You had a massive talent drain out the sport. And we lost a lot of experience. A lot of guys with between 25 and 55 bouts either left the sport or turned over. And now you've got rookies. And you've got rookies being trained by rookies because... You know, a lot of the old school guys, if you take London as an example, a lot of the guys like, you know, I mean, nah, who runs Pet Nemesis, man? Louis, no, Louis Pettit's dad. Um, Steve Newland down at Hooks. Uh, Mickey Delaney at Dale Youth. 
Steve Heiser up at Fisher. Th these guys are a dying breed and a, and a lot of kids aren't built for that kind of tough love. And so you're not getting the caliber of kids coming through that you used to. The second thing is kids aren't training hard enough. A lot of these kids complain about overtraining. They don't train enough to overtrain because they're being trained by basically guys who walked out of fitness first. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with walking out of fitness first and wanting to become a boxing trainer if you're passionate about learning your craft. A lot of these guys aren't. They're really more concerned with calling themselves a boxing coach so they can get more clients for their business. I fundamentally disagree with that. So all of this has contributed to a really poor talent pool. And if you don't believe how poor the talent pool is, it's generally accepted that boxing in London is the worst it's been in over a generation, maybe two or three generations. Yet 11 of the ABA finals were contested by London boxers. So how bad is everyone else in the country? If I was a young boxer now, I'd want to be in Yorkshire or the Northwest. I think that's kind of the way where boxing's popping off in this country for any number of reasons. One, you don't pay as much for gym fees as you do here. So you want to get an arch anywhere in London, it'd be about 60 to 75 grand. Business rates on top of that, 25 to 30 grand. That's 100,000 before you've even turned on the lights or the water. So 100,000, you're normally charging people a five or a pop, right? So just to cover those costs, I need 20,000 visits of people paying a five or a time. Let's say the gym's open for 300 days in the year. I need about 700, well, about 700 visits, right? Need about 700 visits. I might have got my maths wrong on that. But about that, that's absolutely insane. That is absolutely insane. So no, realistically, I probably need about 70 visits a day. It's not 700, it's 70 visits a day. And a fiver each, consistently, just to break even on that. That's not possible. Whereas no disrespect to the people up north, there are people paying pennies. Some people aren't even paying for their gym anymore. And so they are, they're not under the same pressure to fill their gym with bankers and doctors and lawyers and stuff. You can just have kids training their nuts off consistently. And you're seeing it now. And you're seeing the, nor the northern boxers are crushing it, male and female, crushing it. So now we have to admit that the well is dry. And GB have said, and here's, here's the kicker. If boxing is allowed in the 2028 Olympics, which is by no means guaranteed... What you're looking at is, how do you guarantee medals? GB have given up on the men, by the way. The men they have there, they don't believe can win gold medals, silver medals, bronze if you're lucky. But they've given up on the men, and they're going to go all in with the women. That's why they've kept these guys on, because Arting Stall and Price should win medals. And so you're going to guarantee your funding that way. If you can get three or four more medals from somewhere, fantastic. But that's what they're really looking for, is how do we secure... The medals, because without those medals, there is no funding. If amateur boxing doesn't make it to the 2028 Olympics, there is no funding anyway. We'll go back to the old days. And they'll be training at Crystal Palace, wherever it is. But in essence, yeah, I have a real issue with it. Because what GB have said is they'll take three on board. They've got two right now. We have no idea who the third one's going to be yet. 
Um, you never know, Fraser Clark might come back. I think there's a general feeling that he was quite well liked and that he's still head and shoulders above what they currently have, is the view within the camp. But I had this question. Is it even in your best interest to train at GB? Because Joshua did it. It didn't do anything for him apart from make him big. And I see a lot of people come off GB injured. That whatever they say about their training system, it breeds injuries. A lot of people need six months to a year out of that system to let their bodies recover. Right. I'd like to know how many people have had operations after leaving Team GB. A lot of people have because they put you through a lot of training that's meaningless. That doesn't really drive performance. You're almost boiling the ocean with the way that they train people. It's not targeted. It's not focused. It's not like the Cubans and the Soviets who really focus on injury prevention as a central pillar in their training. And so the conclusion we draw from what's happening now with Lauren Price and Karis Artinsall is Team GB is in crisis. Pipeline's dead. They don't know what they're going to do in 2028. And a lot of people aren't going to commit to GB if it's not going to be there in 2028. We're two years away from the Olympics. God, that's come quick. We're two years away from the Olympics and they have no idea who's going to win medals. So they just say, we need to keep these two. That's a sad state of affairs in amateur boxing. And it's heartbreaking. I repeat, it's heartbreaking for all the youngsters who fought in the ABAs, hoping that they might make it into Team GB. Now realizing that Team GB will do whatever they need for medals. And that, if that means bringing in the pros, they'll bring in the pros. Do you know what I mean? And that's that's not what we wanted. Wait, wait, wait. Everyone stop. Stop what you're doing. Please stop what you're doing. Wow. Could yard a million pounds. He had a world title shot. Fuck off, Umar. You are such a clown sometimes, right? Listen to me now. What world title shot has he got? Listen, this is where you, 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 you're all over the gaff, right? Umar. Frank Warren the other day done an interview and he went, yeah, I was going to, uh, you know, or Yard did, and he went, can't really take the Boatsy fight because I'm going to fight the winner of Better Be Ever against Joe Smith. I <laughs> now, you always know what's going to happen after a big fight that doesn't involve Eddie Hearn, right? He goes into overdrive just talking out of his backside. There's another interview, and I might play it later, where he talks about he's bigger than top rank and he's bigger than PBC. And then if you're a real boxing fan, or just a boxing fan in general, pause and think about this. Eddie Hearn essentially just has Canelo part-time and Joshua who no one is going to care about if he loses to Usyk, right? He, ha he has those guys, and to be honest, nothing else. Nothing else of note, nothing that we care about. Look at the card on Saturday. Katie Taylor can't even get her, can't even get her a fight in her own country, right? That, that's how lightly regarded she is. Cannot get Katie Taylor a fight in her own country. At a, and the, at a, God, there was a point when she would have easily fill Croke Park or wherever it is, the Aviva. Should have easily filled those. You could, And he's still deluded enough to think this. Now, think about this. Terence Crawford didn't go with him. Devin Haney had to leave him to go and make fights happen. Eddie Hearn is not the biggest promoter. The thing is, he failed so miserably in America, he's had to try and make it work elsewhere. And he talks about he's a global promoter. Where? Where? If Eddie Hearn could make fights work in Nigeria... Okay, cool. I'd, I'd buy this global promoter thing, but he's not. He's 
he's slowly becoming a, a bitter old man and an embarrassment to boxing. I don't know, you know, I don't want to do YouTube boxing anymore, but Jake's kind of not YouTube boxing anymore. You know, he's got his own business, his own promotional company, he's very smart. Uh, if we can help in any way, um, I would always enjoy being involved in a Jake Paul fight, in a, in a real fight, not a YouTube fight, because he's a boxer. Now, like, I, I want to talk so much about how much of a clown Eddie is, but if you notice in these interviews, if you can see the top of Eddie's head, whatever hair job he had done, he might need to get redone because you can definitely see some <laughs> some visible scalp there. Whatever that thing is he had at the front of his hair, that might be holding through, but the rest of his hair is thinning out now. You know, sometimes you just got to embrace how old you are. Can you imagine him <laughs> one day just looking like Lou DiBella, just bald-headed and overweight, man? <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that day. But here's the point with Eddie, right? And I think we've all accepted it. He will he will always be the Triple H of boxing. Like, you hate him, but deep down you're like, it, it would be bad if he wasn't around, right? Eddie annoys the crap out of me. And it's something I'd say to his face if I saw him. He annoys the crap out of me because he just talks out of his ass. And the thing is, he's got so much delusion in front with it that you're like, God, the idiots out there that are going to believe it. But... You saw from last week how much Eddie was needed for, to promote that fight. Now, the thing with Jake Paul, I remember what he said about those YouTube guys before. He's been disrespectful about them. Eddie's throwing all of his eggs into this Katie Taylor basket, which we all know is is hollow as hell. This is not the biggest fight in female boxing history, women's boxing. It's not the biggest fight. It's, it's Katie Taylor, an accomplished champion, a hell of a champion, against Amanda Serrano, who's just been manufactured out of nowhere. Not one of her wins means anything to a boxing fan. We've just been told to believe Amanda Serrano's good. I'll repeat that. We have just been told to believe that Amanda Serrano is good. No benchmark opponents. Hasn't fought a Baumgardner, hasn't fought a McCaskill, hasn't fought anyone who we would rate and respect. And I know someone's going to try and at me on Twitter and go, yeah, well, here are the people she fought and they're really good. I'll come back. Let me repeat this. She hasn't fought anyone we can benchmark her against as boxing fans. She hasn't. Like I said, I mean, they might as well just call her Steroid Serrano because she was linked with that stuff, wasn't she? That's a fact. I mean, Steroid Serrano is a better name for her. How embarrassing that Eddie's part of this. But desperate men will do desperate things. How many undisputed fights has he been involved in? This is like his only one. <laughs> um, Crawford went undisputed without Eddie. I think Josh Taylor went undisputed without Eddie. I might be wrong on that one because I know he definitely did one of those World Boxing Super Series fights with, with Eddie, but I think he went undisputed without Eddie. Um, Spence Crawford will happen without Eddie. Actually, Canelo, I think Canelo went undisputed. No, Canelo went undisputed without Eddie as well. Uh, Devin Haney's going undisputed without Eddie. So all of this talk about Eddie being the biggest promoter and he hasn't been involved in any meaningful undisputed fight. Couldn't even make the one happen at heavyweight. So that says it all about that promoter and no one's answering the questions about why Uma Ahmed is doing the, the flagship matchroom event and not Coogan Cassius. Where is Coogan? Um, where's Ben Davison 
Where are a lot of these guys who were very vocal on social media when MTK was popping? Where are these guys? You know, I'd have respected them more if they just carried on business as usual. And that's why I'm going to salute Lee Eaton. Because at least Lee Eaton's just got, listen, I've got bills to pay. <laughs> You're not about to stop my grind. I've still got this money to make. And kudos to him, man. But I stand by this. No one should turn rat. I've heard that some people are working as informants already and are snitching in the background. Not for me to name names, but I think that's so disrespectful. And I, I hope I hope they get what's coming to them because, you know, drug-related deaths I'm not happy with. Gangsters killing gangsters I can live with. But rats, rats get what they deserve. And hopefully, if anyone is ratting out there, they'll get found out. Um, in terms of all the other stuff, listen, <laughs> I mean, keep, keep, keep searching the media. You'll find out all the other stuff. I can't, I'm not going to go too much into that. Last thing I want to say is kudos to Matt Macklin. No, no, oh God. Oh, shocker. Kudos to Martin Murray, right? I never thought Martin Murray would be involved in boxing because by his own admission, he's not that interested in boxing, doesn't watch it that much, isn't that involved. But to see him working with schools to try and, you know, help kids who are, you know, struggling at school through boxing, fantastic. So I take my hat off to, to Martin Murray, good man. Good to see him still in the sport. Looks young for 38, 39. So kudos to him for, for staying in the sport and long may it continue. And on that note, I am going to sign off, guys, and say thanks for listening. And please, as always, if you enjoyed the content, like it, share it, get another boxing fan involved and let's build this community because as you guys now understand, this is the only place you're going to hear the truth. <laughs>